Hey, I'm Rick Steves. For the last 15 years, our mission on Travel with Rick Steves has been to stoke your travel dreams and to share inspiring stories from every corner of our globe. While the world grapples with the pandemic of coronavirus, we understand that trips are temporarily off the table for many of us. But we'll get through this, and we'll keep on traveling when this crisis becomes old news. Until then, let's use this time to stoke those travel dreams as we enjoy hearing from our friends and experts about their adventures. If this crisis teaches us anything, it's that we're all in this together, and it's important to get to know our neighbors. Knowing Michelangelo's backstory can make his masterpieces come to life. That's especially true when you get to see a statue of David in Florence. But you sort of need to keep both aspects of the sculpture in mind, both the sort of perfection of it as a work of art, but also as a kind of civic patriotic symbol. Coming up, Miles J. Unger shows us what Michelangelo's genius reveals about the Renaissance in Italy. Actor David Suchet shares what he experienced filming a documentary about the first century world of St. Paul and his travels. One of the most exciting moments of the series on Paul was when I found myself on the Appian Way realizing that the stones beneath my feet had not changed in 2,000 years. And hear how honoring a saint inspires some of Spain's best fiestas. Most of the celebrations in Spain, national holidays, they are related to saints. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Whether you're looking at Michelangelo's magnificent statue of David or you get caught up in a ruckus crowd at a street festival in Spain, or even if you just listen to the wind whisper what life was once like among the sun-bleached ruins of the Mediterranean, your travels can lift your spirit in many ways. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. In just a bit, we'll take a closer look at the world Michelangelo lived in in Florence 500 years ago. And actor David Suchet tells us how he retraced the route that St. Paul traveled through the Eastern Roman Empire nearly 2,000 years ago. Let's start the hour with a look at how people in Spain honor the lives of important figures from their past. There are actually hundreds of national and regional saints in Spain, and you'll find that many of them get a festival that brings their communities out into the streets to celebrate. To explain the role of saints in the culture of Spain, we're joined now by tour guides Jorge Roman from Madrid and Francisco Claria from Pamplona. Jorge and Francisco, happy Easter. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. So Spain is a Catholic country, and, and the church is a huge part of the political and spiritual past. To what extent is the Catholic church still a big part of Spanish society today? It is. I mean, now the um, government that we have now is very conservative, and they relate uh, political issues with the church. No, everybody's happy about that, but it's still part of it. And also, the most of the celebrations in Spain, national holidays, they are related to saints related in to Spain. Saints. Yeah. Names, too. I think a lot of people... How, how does the naming of children work compared to the uh, Catholic faith? I mean, you're Jorge, you're Francisco. Did yeah. that, does that have anything to do with your parents' passion for saints? Well, my case is... My name is Francis Xavier. Well, oh, your middle name is Xavier. Yeah, because San Francis Xavier was born in my town. So, <laughs> And he was the first <laughs> Jesuit, right? He was one of the seven founders of the Jesuits, yep. Okay. The main Jesuit is Ignatius, which is a very common name. Ignatius and Francisco Xavier, that's a, a common name where you come from, yes. Pamplona. Mm -hmm. And Jorge? <laughs> Actually, my name is the equivalent to English to George. George. And is the only saint in the Catholic Church that actually wasn't a saint. How so? He was a warrior that killed a dragon. 
Saint George, Saint George was killing the dragon. Yeah, and he wasn't a saint actually, but uh, <laughs> so there there are a lot of festivals when you travel in Spain. Oh yeah, and almost all of them seem to be related to the church. Mm. Talk about a couple of the the great festivals and the saints' days that are important in your life and in your travels, oh. uh, Francisco. I am from Pamplona, the city of the running of the bulls, and what we celebrate is the death of Saint Fermin. So it's a huge, huge celebration that week. It starts July 6th and it ends July 14th. St. Fermin, and I, you wouldn't even know who St. Fermin is unless you went to the running of the bulls in Pamplona. All the people that come to Pamplona, they don't even know who he is. That's and right, because everybody wears the red uh, kerchief yes. around their neck. And when people go to the running of the bulls, they wear this red neckerchief. Yeah, I mean, what, is, what is the symbolism? Okay, you have to think that Pamplona, we only 200,000 people. And in that week, we welcome one million people. Okay, And everybody's wearing white and red. And nobody knows why. It's <laughs> so like, excuse me, come on, you can do better. So you go, excuse me, I'm a tour guide. I want to explain to you why you're wearing this red handkerchief. And the reason back. is that San Fermin was the first person that was baptized in Pamplona, and they cut his head for that reason. So what we represent, the white outfit represents the holiness, and the red bandana is the blood coming out of his neck. So he was an early Christian in Pamplona who mm-hmm. was beheaded. Yes, he was beheaded. We say that he was beheaded in Pamplona, although history tells us that he was beheaded in France. Oh. Okay, but hey. Who's counting? It's the 4th century. (laughs) Jorge, from Madrid, what festivals would uh, impact a traveler that we should know about? Quite in Madrid, not many, I should say, but there is one very close, which is Toledo. Mm -hmm. It's the Corpus Christi. Ah. That is the big day there in... uh, Corpus Christi. In Toledo. And that's the... the, uh, Corp- the body, the body of Christ. That's correct. Yeah, right. and that's the big day in Toledo, and they do bring some things out of the cathedral and they parade around, and it's part of a it could be the equivalent of the religious belt in Spain, like you have here in the states. Okay. And um, they are very conservative in there. But okay, so that's interesting because in the United States uh, we've got a, a region called the Bible Belt. Yeah. In Spain, is there a region that would be the Bible Belt? Yeah, it could be the Toledo, could be one of them. And mm-hmm. if you go around, let's say, like half moon shape from Madrid to the west. From Madrid to the west. That means Toledo, Avila, Salamanca, that part. Francisco, Burgos. you're frowning. What do you? Uh, what is <laughs> your is image of Spain in, in the Spain, Bible Belt? You know, we have to think that we had the Muslim heritage. Uh-huh. Yeah. And all this Muslim heritage started to come down of it from the north down, thanks ah, to the okay. Camino de Santiago, San James Path. That's right, because just for the historic context, the Muslims came in and took over Spain and Portugal, and from the 8th century until 1492, Mm -hmm. a good part of Spain was ruled by Muslim Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. overlords. And then for centuries, there was the Reconquista, the Reconquering. So finally, in 1492, the last Muslim was pushed out of Granada and back into Africa. Mm -hmm. I always make the difference that the Camino de Santiago, okay, the origin was by the coast, and it was the beginning of the Spanish Reconquest. So this is the Camino of Santiago. This is the big pilgrimage trail that cuts across from France all the way across north Spain to there the major go. city in the northwest of Spain, Santiago de Compostela. There we go. And uh, how, what's the historical roots for this pilgrimage? So, because thousands and thousands of people make this hike. Yeah, they still do it. People at the beginning, they did it by the coast. So those kingdoms, those ancient kingdoms there, they realized that, that wherever the Camino was going, there were no Muslims. So they decided to push it south and south and south and south until the Camino we know today. So I am from the north. In the north, we barely have any Muslim heritage. We were more Christianized much, much, much time before. But if you go down to Andalusia, there you find uh, churches generally built upon a mosque. Correct. And the mosque was built upon a church that Mm -hmm. they destroyed. If you ever go to Sevilla and you see the magnificent tower of the cathedral, that tower actually was the minaret of the old mosque. So there's this layering of history. 
Right. And what's very poignant to me is we hear about people being beheaded today in this struggle of, you know, fanatic Islam and Christians and so on. Yeah. But if you go to a church in southern Spain, it's very common to see a man on a horse with a big sword cutting off the heads of Muslims. And at the feet of the horse, there's six or eight heads of beheaded Muslims. That's correct. Who's this man? Okay, that is St. James. St. James will represent him three ways, as a bishop, as a pilgrim, as a Morse slayer. The Moor Slayer. So yes. his, his nickname was St. James the Moor Slayer, the Moor Killer. Well, and to, the Moors were the Muslims. Yeah, the Moors were the Muslims. And today is politically incorrect, so we're beginning to cover those heads on the floor. Seriously? Yeah. So some of those old statues and paintings are, are getting... Uh, well, we put of, the flowers well enough so you hide them. So you hide them. <laughs> so you see a guy on top of a white horse with a sword. But <laughs> so, every time a Christian is just so disgusted by a Muslim fanatic that cut off one of his people's heads, we've got to remember this is nothing I mean, new in history. Uh, come on, we're Spanish, and I consider myself Catholic. Uh, we've been the worst ever. I mean, we've Inquisition, the Reconquist, uh, we have expelled the Jews. I mean, with the excuse of religion, we've done so much bad. That's right. So, the Inquisition is a, sort of a, the gift of Spain to the rest of Europe. What a gift. <laughs> yeah. What, what a, a gift. poisoned gift. Mm. Jorge, how would you describe the uh, the Inquisition? You see the palace, don't you, out at uh, El Escorial? That's right. That's correct. Yeah. What does the Inquisition mean to, to church history? Um, it's a sad episode. I mean, this is my personal opinion. It's a very sad I mean, it was a gift, as Francisco was saying. But uh, it's a very, very sad history. And every time I talk to them, to my travelers, about the Inquisition, you know, it started with the Catholic monarchs, you know, and then it kept going on. We're exploring the important role that saints play in Spain right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the parts they played in Spanish history and how they're the focus of many national and regional festivals. Our guides are Francisco Glaria from Pamplona and Jorge Roman from Madrid. Jorge, when we travel around Spain, a lot of the saints we encounter patron saints of mm -hmm. different cities. That's right. Give me a few examples of that. Well, St. James from Santiago de Compostela. Mm -hmm. We also have Pilar, which is a lady's name, but the Virgin of Pilar, that mm -hmm. is Zaragoza. They have a basilica in there. Mm -hmm. Zaragoza is halfway from Madrid to Barcelona. We got St. Teresa in Avila. In Avila, Santa Teresa of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. And there's beautiful convent-made cookies and cakes that you experience in this It's called Gemas, actually. They are egg yolks with a lot of sugar, and it's called Gemas from Santa Teresa. Jorge, when I'm in Sevilla, it seems like every neighborhood has its favorite Mary and uh, Virgin Mary. And during Holy Week, everybody takes their statues of Mary out in the streets and parades. What are some insights for travelers to Sevilla during Easter time? You'll have a blast if you're there on Easter and you are on the Good Friday. And you will see the Virgin of the Hope, Virgen de la Esperanza. That's Esperanza, the Virgin the, the de la Esperanza. Esperanza, that's she's nicknamed Macarena because it's in the Macarena district in the north of the city. So we know the Macarena song, which was kind of <sighs> went, went viral. Is that yeah. from the same same? Is that the same word or what? Where does it's, that come? it's just a name. Macarena is Macarena. a name very popular, especially in Sevilla, because uh -huh. of devotion to this Virgin. You know? okay. So there's many ladies in So in there's Sevilla. actually a church dedicated to the Virgin de la Macarena. Yeah. Actually, there is a beautiful church in there. And where you can see the statue of, of the Virgin, and also they have a museum on the side, mm -hmm. a side wing, where you can see the um, big thrones that they are already mm -hmm. ornated. To this is the Virgin with the crystal teardrops. Correct. I find that to be one of the most impactful Beautiful. and mm -hmm. emotional and, and just emotional statues anywhere in Europe. Yeah. And then a couple times a year, they'll actually take her out and walk through the town. Mm -hmm. They do take him, I think it's the early winter, and by mm -hmm. all means, in Good Friday, mm -hmm. which is the, the but, Virgin Mary. But you can see the Virgin della Macarena any time of year if you go to that church in 
Every day. Every day you can go. Yeah, they're open. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jorge Roman and Francisco Gloria about saints in Spain. Francisco Gloria, you live up in Basque Country. Does Basque Country have the same passion for saints? And, and what is one saint we should know about when we visit your corner of Spain? We're a little bit more austere and we don't have this drama, this flamenco drama. We love our saints. And the most important one could be San Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuits. He's, so, so this is a, a political personality, really, a religious leader, and he became a saint? Yes, he became a saint. He was a soldier, great leader, and he helped the Catholic kings. And then life of God enlightened him, and he became a saint, well, a, a priest. Where, where would we go and what would we see to remember uh, St. Ignatius? You have Ignatius. to go to his hometown, which is called Loyola. Here in the United States, you have the Loyola University. Oh, yeah. And it happens to be Jesuit, but of course. So uh, you get to see his hometown and the Church of Basilic. It's beautiful. It's uh, very, very close to Bilbao. It's a little side so trip. So a lot of us will go to Bilbao when we visit this uh, Spanish part of Basque Country. And near Bilbao is the town of Loyola. Mm-hmm. And if you want to make your pilgrimage to St. Ignatius, that's what you have to do. Any good Jesuit. Well, we get all of these Jesuits going to Pamplona because he was wounded there, to Loyola, to Barcelona because he left his sword. To so the, the, the footsteps of Ignatius itinerary. Well, this had <laughs> Ignatius route. <laughs> the Ignatius route. All right. There's so many ways to incorporate all of this uh, rich Catholic heritage into your sightseeing in Spain. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been discussing the importance of saints in Spain, and we've been joined by Jorge Roman and Francisco Claudia. Jorge, Francisco, gracias. Thank you. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll look at how you can get in touch with the genius of Michelangelo in his hometown of Florence. And we'll sample a night of making homemade pasta in Tuscany. That's in just a bit. But first, actor David Suchet tells us what he learned about the first century world of St. Paul. David filmed a travel documentary retracing Paul's extensive travels from the Middle East and Asia Minor to Rome. And he shares how the Apostles' words inform his own faith today. Happy Easter. It's Travel with Rick Steves. His travels in the Mediterranean world of the first century helped to transform a small Jewish sect into one of the most powerful religions on earth. British actor David Suchet was eager to learn about the world that St. Paul encountered in the eastern Mediterranean and the places that inspired the famous letters he wrote to the fledgling churches of that region. Reading Paul's letter to the Romans changed David's own beliefs and his outlook on life. So a couple of years before he wrapped up the Agatha Christie Poirot TV series, David hosted a BBC documentary called In the Footsteps of St. Paul. In it, he retraces Paul's route across the Roman Empire, from Turkey to Israel, Cyprus, Greece, Malta, and eventually the seat of the empire itself, the city of Rome. His special on St. Paul airs from time to time on public TV in the U.S., and it's a featured video download from Acorn TV. David Suchet joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us why it was important for him to investigate the life and travels of St. Paul. David, it's great to have you with us. It's so nice to be with you, Rick. David, you were raised, I understand, a secular Jew in London. You stumbled upon a Bible as you were traveling, in the United States, actually, and You've done a BBC special that I just watched about the footsteps of St. Paul that is just so intimate and takes us right there. Tell us a little backstory on, on how you came to do this project on the Apostle Paul. Well, in a nutshell, I was converted to Christianity by 
Paul's letter that he wrote to the group of Christians in Rome. So in the New Testament, you'll find the letter Paul to the Romans. And by the time I'd finished that letter that I imagined to be written to me, because that's how I look at old classical plays, if they, I, I imagine they come fresh through my letterbox. And if I'm reading a letter like Paul, then it'll be written to me so I can take it very seriously and personally. By the end of reading that letter of Paul to the group of Romans, Roman Christians in Rome, especially in the last few chapters, I had found a worldview that I'd been searching for all my life. Now, in 1986, which was the date of my conversion, I was 40. So I'd been looking for quite some time. Hmm. And as I said, it gave me a worldview. And the worldview of Christianity is very simple and the hardest to follow, which is love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God and love your neighbor. So you set out to retrace the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. I set out, once the BBC had agreed to let me do it, I set out to find out who this man was that actually taught me this worldview through his letter. And I discovered one of the most fascinating and energetic men in history. You call him the greatest international ambassador of Christianity. Give us a sense yes. of what impact he had on the spread of Christianity. Well, Jesus died on the cross. Christians believe that he resurrected and ascended into heaven leaving a little group of bewildered disciples of his, followers of his, on the ground. They were Jewish. They were all Jewish. Jesus was a Jew. And they wanted to continue believing in what Jesus taught. And the Jewish authorities were very much against them. They were like a breakaway group that had grown during the ministry of Jesus Christ. And one of the greatest men from the Jewish synagogue called Saul was their greatest persecutor. And in fact, he was on the way to Damascus when he saw a blinding light and heard Jesus talking to him. And it said, Saul, Saul, why are you still persecuting me? This is the man who was so against this little group who were following in the way of Jesus. This is the man that became St. Paul. Hmm. And he was the man who took the faith of Christianity outside of the Middle East, outside of Israel. He was the first person to cross the water and take it to Europe. And without Paul's three travels, three journeys, huge journeys, that ended up in Rome, Christianity, I don't believe, would have ever left Israel. Seems like Paul was a big personality, and uh, regardless of which team he was on, I mean, first he was a avid persecutor of Christians, and suddenly he becomes the greatest ambassador of Christians. Quite different from Peter. I mean, you've, you did a show on Peter, and you did a show on Paul. Having done both of those shows, The Footsteps of Peter and The Footsteps of Paul, how do you distinguish the two men? Ah, uh, well, they're both leaders in their own right, because they both had a commission. Paul actually had a commission from Jesus to go out and preach and to move the Christian faith to the Gentile world, i.e., 
he was meant to take it outside of the Jewish faith and to give it to the Gentiles. Hmm. Peter, however, was to continue to take it to the Jewish people, which very few would accept Christ. Paul never, ever believed that he was wrong. He was a very proud man. I said in my series, he's a man that I don't know if I'd have... Well, he would have been a man I would love to have had dinner with, but I don't know if I'd have got through to the dessert. <laughs> I think I might have I might have left halfway through. He He was going to be a very tricky dinner companion. However, Peter... And Paul was a great intellectual. Peter, however, was a simple fisherman. Right. Peter had a, quite a, an enterprise going because he had a fishing business with two other fishermen and had a nice little business there in Galilee. But meeting Jesus changed his life. Mm -hmm. The thing about Peter is that Peter always, bless him, got it wrong. He's the disciple that when Jesus was being tried and he was in the courtyard outside and somebody said to him, aren't you one of the followers of this man, Jesus? He denied him. Mm -hmm. He denied being a follower mm. three times. He let Christ down. The thing about Peter for all of us is that he allows every one of us to fail mm -hmm. and yet still be loved. And I think that's one of the greatest differences between Paul and Peter. Peter was if you like, more like you and me, the ordinary man and woman in mm -hmm. the street. Paul was driven. He was a, almost a religious fanatic. But without Paul's fanaticism, without his energy, without his drive, we don't know where Christianity would be. And we don't know what happened to Peter, by the way. Obviously, the Catholic Church believed that he ended up in Rome and that he was buried in Rome. Hence, you have the Vatican in Rome. But it's not actually 100% that Peter actually got to Rome. David Suchet is our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's an accomplished stage and screen actor, best known in the United States for his portrayal of Inspector Poirot for many years on the Agatha Christie mystery series Poirot. We're talking to him about the documentary he's filmed in the footsteps of St. Paul. David, it seems like the traveling you did really complemented your fascination and your admiration for Paul. Let's talk about a few places that we could actually go physically to get a better appreciation of Paul. First of all, as you mentioned, he went beyond Jerusalem. Before we leave Jerusalem, what's one evocative spot where you really feel biblical times in Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem itself, I can't give you one spot. Although, obviously, I would go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where Jesus is said to have been crucified and where he was buried is actually located in the church itself. Obviously, that's a very holy place. But once again, it's full of pilgrims and it's so crowded, you can hardly find a place to sit quietly and meditate. But that's an extraordinary place. I like to actually walk in the old markets in Jerusalem and down by the old city of David, down by the pool of Siloam, where the Old Testament took place. I mean, these are historical places rather than, if you like, the great pilgrim tourist trap. Mm -hmm. I like to go to places where I can just sit and meditate. I like to go outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness, the Kidron Valley and down to Jericho, and you can see where the, the parable of the Good Samaritan actually occurred. Mm. And you can go outside and see where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan. These, for me, touch the heart as much for the Old Testament 
as for the New Testament, because we have to remember continually when discussing Paul, discussing Peter, discussing Jesus, they were Jews. Mm-hmm. They were not Christian. David, physically walking as Paul did, uh, people estimate he covered 10,000 miles on foot. When you say the footsteps of Paul for the name of your documentary, it is literally the footsteps of Paul on these ancient stone roads. What were the roads like, and, and what was it like to walk these roads as you did when you made this special? One of the most exciting moments of the series on Paul was when I found myself on the Appian Way realizing that the stones beneath my feet had not changed in 2,000 years. And I could have been standing on his very footsteps. And when I realized that, I got such a tingle up my spine. Mm, That's amazing. (laughs) And then realizing, of course, that, hey, (laughs) now he had to walk (laughs) all those miles. He ended up in, in Rome. What a... Uh, He was extraordinary, the energy behind this man. You know, there's no motor cars, there's no filling stations, there's nowhere to go. I mean, how they did it, how they were driven, Mm -hmm. or they were driven because it was that important to them. And we should mention to our listeners, David, that you can ride a bicycle out of Rome for half an hour and find yourself on the Apian Way or the Appian Way, and those stones yeah. are right there. Some of the best stretch of ancient roads I've ever walked is, is just outside of the city of Rome. And just outside the city of Rome, and I would recommend it to everybody who wants mm. to touch that history of mm. 2,000 years ago. It's there. You can walk it. Now, it's interesting to think about the infrastructure of Rome 2,000 years ago. If you ever wanted to start a religion, about the time of Christ would be the perfect time to do it because that was the beginning of the Pax Romana. And for 200 years, you've got general peace and stability and a better road service than anywhere, just like the United States built our interstate system, just like Hitler built his autobahns. You know, Rome built all these roads so they could lace their empire together and defend it more efficiently. And, of course, we have one language of educated people, well, Greek or Latin. Let's talk just a minute about these letters, because Paul really was moving the word of God or the word of Jesus around with these letters. And we think of the city of Ephesus. Well, that would be a letter to the Ephesians. The city of Philippi, Philippians, Thessaloniki, Thessalonians, Corinth, Corinthians. Talk a little bit about how these letters worked and how Paul was a master with this new technology of letter writing. Well, I call it the first use of the, what we now call the internet or the email. I mean, he was able, because of the roads, because of the network of roads, he was able to send these letters to these groups of struggling Christians all over the place, all the places that you've just kindly mentioned. These were letters that were meant to be read out loud. Don't forget that most of the little group who became Christians later were probably illiterate anyway. So these were letters that were to be read out loud, and they would take some time to get to where they, they had to go, their destination. But there were, as you say, highways and roads to make this possible. And in that sense, you're right, it couldn't have happened at a better time because of the way that Rome had these Mm -hmm. network of of roads. Our guest is actor David Suchet. He's a major figure in London theatre and maybe best known in America for the 25 years he spent as the star of Agatha Christie's Poirot on TV. David's also produced a follow-up BBC travel series in the footsteps of St. Peter. And he narrates a documentary about the Protestant Reformation that you can see occasionally on your public television station. 
You'll find links to his specials with this week's show in the radio section at ricksteves.com. In your travels, David, you talked a lot about these house churches. And I understand before there were, like, legal churches, when, when Christianity was still under the radar, people would gather in people's homes and they would have house churches. I can almost envision somebody saying, hey, we have a letter from Paul. Let's all gather together in the house church and some leader would, would read it. Is that the sense you got in your travels? Yes, absolutely. The house churches were the beginning of the church, the first church, if you like, main big building that was known as a church was when the the group of people, followers of the way, became known rather derogatorily as Christians, was in a, in a big building in Antioch in Turkey. Mm. Before then, it was literally house churches. And Paul had to send letters to these people because they were getting it all wrong. When people met to have the what we call the Eucharist or the communion of the wine and the bread to celebrate Jesus, they would turn it into a dinner party and people would get drunk and things like that. So he had to he had to sort of keep people on the straight and narrow by his letters and they and that's why they're so full of great great instruction. So how you read these letters today if you're respecting the New Testament uh to read it like you said, as if it's being read to you and with the sense that Paul is trying to keep the young church from derailing and keep it on track and true to message. Yes, I think that's so important. I would recommend to everybody listening, if you read any letter in the New Testament or indeed any historical letter, to fully understand it, put your name at the top. Dear Rick. <laughs> you know, we're talking about traveling in the footsteps of Paul. And going to Ephesus must have really been a good place to make the whole story of Paul vivid with what happened at Ephesus. Well, Paul went to Ephesus, which was a great pagan city. I mean, gosh, this man was brave. And they were all worshipping the goddess Artemis. And he would preach to hundreds of people about Jesus. And he became a huge threat to the artisans who were making images of the goddess Artemis. Hmm. And they really tried to get rid of him. In fact, they did get rid of him, and in the end he had to leave. All these pagans were buying these little statuettes in order to sure, worship. Sure, it was a big business. And Paul comes in and says, you don't need to buy these little idols. You, you don't just... need anything. <laughs> so he's bad Jesus for is in your Jesus is in your heart. This is bad business for the Ephesians. But you know what was wonderful is just outside Ephesus today, there is the famous cave of St. Paul or the grotto of St. Paul. Mm. And it has to be unlocked and you'll need a torch. But inside is one of the earliest depictions of St. Paul. And actually, funnily enough, uh, when we got in there, we were very, very privileged to film. And I put my face next to the image of St. Paul and I said to the camera, hey, we, we, <laughs> we don't look, we look very similar. <laughs> I remember was, that scene some... in your show and it really, there was a, a physical resemblance between there you was. and Paul in that old fresco there in the cave above Ephesus. Yes. By the way, when you were talking about house churches, yeah. uh, in the fourth century, if you're, anybody is going to Cappadocia, in Gorem, G O. R-E-M-E, -E, are the uh -huh. wonderful small cave oh, yeah. churches, which are just extraordinary as well, where people worshipped in these caves, these little caves, the earliest form of formal worship that we know. 
David Suchet, it is such a delight talking with you. Uh, I know that you uh, f- we found that fresco in the cave at Ephesus that had a resemblance between <laughs> you and Paul. You also wrote that you'd, you'd enjoy portraying the Apostle Paul sometime as an actor. Any yeah. chance of that role uh, happening any, anytime no, soon? No, I think, and I think by my time of life now, I think that has passed me oh, by, okay. but I feel so very privileged to have been given the chance to have made the program on St. Paul find out about him mm-hmm. as a man, and the same with St. Peter. What a gift for an actor and a Christian. David Suchet, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your work. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure, Rick. In just a minute, we explore the world of the High Renaissance in Italy. Michelangelo transformed the way we see our world by breathing a human sensibility into the religious themes of his sculptures and frescoes. We'll explore how his hometown of Florence is the ideal base for you to enter into the world of Michelangelo, next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you get to see one of Michelangelo's masterpieces in person, it could be his frescoes in the Sistine Chapel or his famous statues of David or the Pietà, you're seeing works of art that are not only beautiful, they're revolutionary. In the height of the Italian Renaissance, Michelangelo Buonarroti of Florence added a humanistic sensibility to the religious art that he was commissioned to create. He fought with his patrons to create what his inner muse saw, Michelangelo left us a legacy that touches the deepest chords of the human spirit 500 years later. Miles J. Unger spent five years in Florence in preparation for writing Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us how Florence is an ideal place to understand Michelangelo. That's because Florence retains much of the character that framed Michelangelo's world. Miles, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. You know, what, something striking and something you mentioned in your book, Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, is how Florence today, to a large extent, feels like Florence in Michelangelo's time 500 years ago. How so? It's uh, been preserved very well, in part because it, shortly after Michelangelo's death, it sort of slid into irrelevance. It was a nation-state, a city-state on the decline, and so it did not have the great post-Michelangelo building boom that Rome had with those, all those wonderful Baroque uh, churches and palaces. Uh, so it, in a way, it was a city frozen in time. And today, when you visit uh, Florence, you can walk within what were the city walls, a uh, very easy walk. You can cover so many dimensions of Michelangelo's career. If you were to be our tour guide and design a visit in Florence to just pick up on the genius and the wonder of Michelangelo, how would you structure it? Where would you go first? Well, I think the place to start is the Casa Buonarroti, which is a property he purchased himself. It's not where he grew up, but it's one of the palaces he purchased as soon as he had some money. There they have some of his earliest works, particularly the Battle of the Centaurs and the Madonna of the Stairs, which are his two earliest sculptures. So I think that's a good place to start. It wasn't necessarily his boyhood home. It's treated like the house of the Buonarroti family. And if there is a Michelangelo museum in town, that would be it. Uh, nearby is Santo Spirito, and uh, Santo Spirito is, seems just like another church, but it has actually some of his work in situ, doesn't it? It does. It has a crucifixion, though I have to say that this is disputed. Not everyone believes this is a genuine Michelangelo. Um, most scholars do, but hmm. most people think it was a a work he did as a young man after he did a number of dissections in hmm. the church there, in the morgue of the ah. church, and in 
gratitude for allowing him to do this, which was not really considered uh, kosher back in those days. Um, he carved this nude Christ for the church, which uh, is still there. And it hangs on a cross to this day, 500 years later. And that's a good point. Michelangelo had that Renaissance appetite and curiosity for understanding what's under the skin. And it was very dicey to be uh, dissecting corpses. And uh, if you had good connections in the church, you could probably have access to some corpses and that let Michelangelo do his research. And uh, it shows in his art, I would say. I think it's exciting to see a Michelangelo actually not in a museum, but in the original place it was intended to be. The artistic term for that, I think, is in situ. And a beautiful thing about the crucifix in Santo Spirito is it's that slender, less muscular Michelangelo that you see in his early years. And later on, he got into his more massive and big-bodied work. The Bargello, the former prison in Florence, is uh, to statues what the Uffizi is to painting, isn't it? Yeah, it has one of the great collections of Renaissance, particularly early Renaissance sculpture. And if you want to see the sculptures of David that Michelangelo was looking at when he sculpted his own David. There are a couple of wonderful ones. The Donatello is there, the wonderful bronze Donatello David, and the Verrocchio uh, David as well. But uh, in terms of Michelangelo's, the most important works there are the early Bacchus, which was the first work mm-hmm. he did in Rome. And again, not the kind of over-muscled figure that you expect of Michelangelo, and also one of the early reliefs he did of the mother and child, uh, the Piti Tondo, is there as well. So that would be on your list, the Bargello. And you mentioned something really that I hadn't even thought of, Miles, but to appreciate Michelangelo, appreciate the art that inspired him. And in the Bargello, you could see those earlier Davids by Verrocchio and Donatello. Was Michelangelo actually inspired by those masterpieces? He was very inspired by Donatello in particular, who no Florentine sculptor could sort of escape the legacy of, of Donatello. But I think he was he wanted to do something very different. His is a much more monumental figure. It takes a different point in the story. It takes the, the point before David has defeated Goliath. So he's looking at Donatello, but I think he's trying to do something very different. And he certainly did. You can almost psychoanalyze the the tenor of the age by looking at the treatment of David from one generation to the next. Uh, Of course, Michelangelo is a Renaissance genius, and almost by definition, that means you are a master of different uh, media. And he was an architect, he was a sculptor, and a painter. And if you want to see, uh, I think the only painting I've ever seen by Michelangelo is in the Uffizi. Yeah, it's the only painting on panel, if you don't include the great frescoes, of course. Right. Uh, the Sistine Chapel and the uh, Last Judgment. It's the only panel painting. And describe uh, he did not. He famously did not like painting, and uh, even though he was trained as a painter in Ghirlandaio's studio, he kept saying, oh, it's not my art, and trying to beg off various projects. But he was, as you can see, if you look at the Holy mm. Family, a highly skilled and trained painter. But when you look at the Holy Family, you you feel like his heart is in sculpture because the figures he painted have that sculptural kind of depth, don't they? They do. Um, Unlike his great rival and the the person he was looking at when he was painting this, he was definitely looking at Leonardo da Vinci's wonderful family groupings and trying to compete with him. But whereas Leonardo's painting these soft, misty, Mm. his famous sfumato, (laughs) everything in the Holy Family is, you know, as if lit by Klieg lights. It's, you know, just this pops. harsh, bright light. And I always think it's interesting that when all this controversy happened uh, a couple of decades ago about cleaning the Sistine Chapel and people saying, oh, well, all the, you know, if you clean it off, it's way too garish. 
I was thinking to myself, well, just look at the Holy Family and the Uffizi and look how, how garish these colors are. They're bright and, you know, these lime mm-hmm. greens and purples are very much the colors that popped out after the uh, Sistine ceiling was cleaned. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Miles J. Unger. Miles' book is Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. And we're traveling through Florence right now, dropping into all the sites that have Michelangelo masterpieces. And, of course, people go to Florence to see David. David originally was positioned outside of the uh, city government building on the Piazza della Signoria, and it ended up a replica there and the original nearby in the Academia uh, Gallery. Uh, Talk for a minute, please, Miles, about the Piazza della Signoria and how that relates to Michelangelo. The Piazza della Signoria and the palazzo behind it were the seat of the Florentine government. And Florence at this time was a separate nation-state with a proud centuries-old history, but it was beleaguered on all sides by much larger foes who wanted to swallow it up. And the David was sculpted as a patriotic symbol, and it was placed in the center, the civic center of Florence. It had actually originally been commissioned to stand on top of the uh, tribune of the cathedral, but the city fathers quickly realized it would be much more effective as a patriotic symbol if it sat there in the civic square. Mm -hmm. So today you can see a very good copy of the David standing where it stood for many centuries. And then uh, one can go on to see the original in the Academia Museum a few blocks away, where you see the sort of exquisite art of the original, the subtlety of the carving, the beauty of the surfaces. But you sort of need to keep both aspects of the sculpture in mind, both the sort of perfection of it as a work of art, but also as a kind of civic patriotic symbol. And it also reminds me, uh, Miles, when I think about the situation of the replica of David in front of the old palace, the fact that the Renaissance was a great cultural thing, but it wasn't for the commoners so much, and it was up in the higher floors of the palace there, with the windows just out of stone's throw reach. And uh, I believe that the story is they were having a riot, and people broke into the palace, and they threw furniture out the window. It actually knocked off a part of the statue of Michelangelo's precious David, and they realized they needed to put David uh, safely off the street and into a, a gallery. Uh, is that your understanding of it? Well, that happened actually years later. It was damaged, and interestingly enough, the great art historian and sort of disciple of Michelangelo saved the arm and preserved it until after the riots were over and then Mm. reattached it. But it it did stand out there for a couple of centuries more and before it was brought in, I think, in the 19th century to preserve it from the mostly from the weather and pollution and other other damage. When you see the, the David today, you see it almost like it's in a church, like it's the altar of, of humanism mm-hmm. under this amazing dome. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really been transformed from, and this is the way art often goes, art particularly it's made for a particular political or religious purpose. It's often, nowadays we're used to seeing things in museums where they're sort of sanitized and separated. We look at them as aesthetic objects first mm-hmm. and foremost. Mm-hmm. And this is certainly one way to look at them. But I think it's also important to understand the way they functioned within society at the time as propaganda, as as a kind of patriotic or religious symbol. They were not sort of separated from life the way they are now in the kind of climate-controlled atmosphere of the museum. You know, I think that is so important to understand the context and who paid for it and why. What was the agenda? Because this art took a lot of money and people had an agenda. And uh, in so many cases, like David, it had a, a real purpose. 
Miles J. Unger explores how Michelangelo redefined what it meant to be an artist and why his works are among the highest achievements of Western civilization in his book called Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces. Unger's earlier works on Renaissance Italy are about Machiavelli and Lorenzo di Medici. His website is milesjunger.com. Well, let's talk about the Pieta. There's three or four Michelangelo Pietas. A beautiful, of course, the most famous one is in St. Peter's, but a beautiful Pieta is in the Museum of the Duomo, of the cathedral, uh, just behind the cathedral. That's one of the highlights and one of the less appreciated masterpieces by Michelangelo, I would say. Yeah, it's uh, partly because it was never finished. In fact, he wanted to destroy it himself. This was the statue that was meant for he meant for his own tomb. But he was working on it late in life, and it was a very complex figure grouping with four figures, including his own self-portrait as Nicodemus, who brings the body down from the cross. But he really had a hard time with it. He At one point, he smashed the, I think it's the right leg of Christ, mm-hmm. in anger because he couldn't get it right. And he wanted to sort of throw it out in frustration mm-hmm. and anger. Uh, but fortunately, it was preserved, and it is a very moving both the unfinished self-portrait as Nicodemus plus the the body of Christ is just one of the most wonderful passages in all his sculpture. Uh, But it is an incomplete and probably uncompletable sculpture, which is why he himself was uh, so furious and and frustrated by its execution. I find it so touching because I'm looking at that portrait, that face of Nicodemus, which is actually the very old Michelangelo looking down at one of his last major pieces of art. and, And you have this beautiful... Pieta below him and, and Michelangelo as Nicodemus is looking down over it. And then maybe cap your um, visit to Florence with the Michelangelo theme by going to the Santa Croce Church because there you will find Michelangelo's tomb surrounded by all the other great Florentine, you know, big names of the Renaissance. And it is quite a reminder that this was a time of great energy and things coming together, a perfect storm of creativity and, and artistic wonder. What do you see when you go into Santa Croce, Miles? I love Santa Croce. It's one of my favorite churches in uh, Florence, and I love the square outside Santa Croce as well. Um, but it was used as the Medici for a long time tried to make it into a kind of pantheon of Florentine greatness, uh, and Machiavelli is buried there as well. It was also the church that was the Buonarroti sort of parish church. It was right in their neighborhood. It was the one that Michelangelo himself felt most closely tied. But it really gives you a sense of the kind of constellation of genius was created in a city that in Michelangelo's time was no more than 50,000 maximum people. Uh, But, you know, the the number of of great artists and poets and philosophers Mm. that came out of there is truly, I think, the only city that I think in history that could rival that record would be uh, Athens in the 5th century BC. It was Mm -hmm. just one of these moments where everything came together and uh, you really see in the Church mm. of Santa Croce. So there in Santa Croce, you've got really that celebration of all the greatness that came together, that perfect storm of creativity and genius and civic pride that put Florence on the map. Miles J. Unger, thank you for writing Michelangelo, A Life in Six Masterpieces, and thanks a lot for giving us a better understanding of how we can enjoy the brilliance of Michelangelo next time we go to Florence. Well, thank you. Cameron Hewitt is a senior researcher at Rick Steves Europe, and he joins us on Travel with Rick Steves from time to time. Last year, Cameron stayed at a farmhouse agriturismo out in the Italian countryside of Tuscany. But he didn't have to worry about getting bored. He files this report for us on one of the activities guests are invited to join in on, making homemade pasta the old-fashioned way. 
A Tuscan agriturismo, or tourist farm, really puts you in touch with local traditions. I'm staying at a farmhouse that perches on a ridge just outside of Pienza. As the sun sets, it casts warm orange light on vibrant green fields. In a glassed-in veranda, a dozen American travelers huddle around a table. Our hosts are about to show us how to turn a few bags of flour and some eggs into a traditional Tuscan feast. Hi, I'm Cameron Hewitt. It's Thursday night, and here at Cretaiole Agriturismo, Thursday night is pasta-making night. A few years back, city slicker Isabella married country boy Carlo. They turned his family farm into an agriturismo, and today they fill their guests' week-long stays with vivid experiences. Everyone's favorite activity is learning how to make a traditional noodle called pichi. Isabella and her right-hand woman, Carlota, stand over an oversized cutting board and address the group. We can't do the pichi on a flowery board. We need to clean the board perfectly from all the flower rests. Okay? But we like the bumps, eh? We don't want we the We like the, the roughness here. Okay? So First, Carlotta dumps out four bags of flour. Then she dredges out a crater, turning her mountain into a volcano. They crack seven eggs into their powdery reservoir. The kids help. And listen. Okay, now that it changes the sound here, and put the thumbs inside. Okay, very good. Okay. One. And now we try another one. Okay. They beat the eggs with a fork and sprinkle in a few drops of water. Slowly, they pull in more and more flour from the lip of the crater. And gradually, the eggy goo turns into a hunk of sticky dough. With the, with the fingertips, you lift it up, you roll it back a little bit, and the hand heels gently push forward. Then the fingertips roll it back. Peachy is a peasant's noodle. It's not neatly extruded from a metal tube. It's rustic and hand-rolled. Here's the technique. You cut off a hunk of dough, hold it in your left hand, and use your right hand to roll a little tail from the dough against the cutting board. It's trickier than it sounds. Too little pressure, and you get thick ropes. Too much pressure, and it breaks into bits. But if you do it just right, you get a noodle shaped like a three-foot-long earthworm. While everyone's making noodles, I head outside to find Carlo at the grill, where his ribs and pork sausages sizzle. Con legno di quercia e olivo. Sì. E questo è il maiale che salsicce. Ah, sausage. In the little garden shed nearby, Isabella pours three generous handfuls of salt into 20 gallons of boiling water. Then she drops in the handfuls of peachy. The noodles squirm around the bubbles like miniature eels. You see, now it starts yes. to boil. So when it really starts to foam, from that point we wait another minute. Okay. Now it begins. You'll see what happens in a few seconds. Eh? And in just a few minutes, it's done cooking. Isabella tosses the peachy with some meat ragu she's been simmering all day long. And everybody it's gathers uh, on the veranda. Beef and pork, 50-50. Mm-hmm. And uh, carrots, onions, salad. We all dig into our hard-earned feast. The peachy are firm but tender. Each noodle clings to just the right amount of sauce, just like it was designed to do. That's fantastic. As I enjoy my favorite meal of the trip, it dawns on me. Here in Tuscany, traditional ways still really are the best ways. I'm generous! (laughs) 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks to the BBC's Wogenhaus Studios in London and WGBH Radio in Boston for their help this week. When you're traveling, you can find out when other stations air travel with Rick Steves. Look online for a link to our affiliate listings at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.